Friesland, that was quite a long passage, but let's have a look together to see what's in it. And I want to begin just by telling you a story about an old farmer who wrote to his son who was in prison, um, and he, he wrote this letter. He said, um, Dear Albert, this year I'm able to plant my potatoes because I can't dig the ground. It's far too hard. I know if you were here, you would come and help me. His son wrote back, Dear Dad, please don't dig the ground. I've hidden the gold there, and I'll get it when I get out. Well, that day, the police read the letter, and they went straight to the old man's garden and dug it all up looking for the gold. Nothing was found. The son wrote back again and said, Dear Dad, now you can plant your potatoes. It's the best I could do from here. Well, today um, I want to talk about gardening to start off with, as we have done, and I just want to say that I'm not a very good gardener. I cut the lawns, I trim the edges, I prune the hedges, I dig out tree roots with a mattock I got given for Christmas a couple of years ago. I love that mattock. Um, I shift Sue's pots. We've got a lot of pots in our garden. The one thing I get most satisfaction from is harvesting fruit that I've planted. Three years ago, we decided to plant a tiny persimmon tree in our garden. We were able to get one, a little sapling. Um, and this year, we harvested some fruit. And when I went out, it would have been around about November, October, November, I noticed nine little green things on it. And I watched that fruit grow, not every day, I might add, but a lot of the days I'd go out there and they got a little bit bigger, still green, still green, still green, and then they turned a little bit yellow, and I thought, oh, great. And eventually they got quite big and then they turned yellow and green and eventually they turned orange. And Sue kept saying to me, don't pick them too soon. I was itching to get my hands on those persimmons. Anyway, about six weeks ago I picked them and I was so proud of myself. I took these persimmons in and I presented them to Sue and we put them on the kitchen window and I got my camera out, I took a photograph of them, and I sent them to all my family. Look at the persimmons. I was very reluctant to give any of them away because we only had nine. Sorry about that. But today in the book of Revelation, we're learning about reaping the earth's harvest. And the reaping of the world's harvest is for judgment, for God's righteous judgment. The actual judgment will be dealt with in chapter 20. I think I'm preaching on that one, no, or 21, I can't remember. Anyway, perhaps 20. Um, and today's message follows on from last week's message where Howard preached about the mark of the beast and the two beasts. You might remember that. Now, in Revelation 14, there's a reference to a harvest that's already taken place and two harvests to come. 
the harvest of the first fruits of those who have died in the Lord and who belong to God and have followed the Lamb. And then there are two harvests to come. One is suggested to be a grain harvest and the other a grape harvest. Um, the grain harvest is the one of those who continue to worship and follow the Lord and the grape harvest is for those who have denied the reality of the living God and they just go along with the world's systems, the world's values of money and power and pleasure. And I want us to be really clear that there are only two positions that any human being can ever take. Either they follow the Lamb and worship God and love God, the Lamb being Jesus Christ, and will be with him one day in heaven, or people follow false religions, philosophies, um, man-made systems of the world, um, and these people are actually controlled by Satan because that's who controls the world with those people who are not in Christ. And the eternal destiny of those people is hell, a Christless eternity. There's no halfway house. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Not some. No one. And it's really important as Christ follows that we have it clearly identified in my, our minds that we are not universalists. A universalist will think that, in fact, every day, in the end, God will put it all right and everyone who's ever lived will live happily ever after in God's bliss. That's what universalists believe. And Christians are not universalists. Otherwise, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the horrific sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the death of the martyrs who have served Christ faithfully and been persecuted, that means absolutely nothing. So let's dive in and have a look to see what Revelation 14 offers us. And we need to bear in mind, of course, that this was a letter written to the churches at the time, Churches facing the encroachment of Roman civilization and persecution. It was written as an apocalypse. An apocalypse means images and pictures that we're not so familiar with, but many of them are drawn from Old Testament um, prophets. And thirdly, the book of Revelation was written to remind God's people that God is in control. He's won the victory. Very important to remember. So if you've got a good news Bible, there are a few there, you might like to turn to Revelation 14 because Revelation 14 is actually divided into three sections and I'm just going to speak briefly about each of those three sections so you can grab a hold of what's happening in that. The first one, in verses 1 to 5, what we see here is we see the Lamb, Jesus Christ, with... I underline the word with here, with his faithful people. That was the word that struck me as I read it. Christ with his people. They are described as being the first fruits of God and the Lamb. 
They are the first fruits of God's harvest. They're numbered here as 144,000. And as we know, 144,000 is not a literal number. 144,000 is representative of the multitude of people who have served Christ faithfully, have served God and his mission in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That's the 144,000. And so in the Old Testament, we get faithful people like Moses and Elijah, who we've just sung about, and David, um, and Ruth and Hannah, and other people who are not so significant, people like Simeon and Anna, and lots of people who faithfully trusted God. They're in that 144,000. And then in the New Testament, um, we, after the immediate death of Christ, there are many people who suffered persecution and death as martyrs. So, for example, we get Stephen of Jerusalem who was stoned outside the city. And we get, you might remember when we studied the, book of Pergam, uh, the, the letter to the church at Pergamon, there was a man called Antipas who was a recognized martyr. So these are the people, and the ones who have died since, martyrs who have died since, these are the ones who've been redeemed among men, and the, the Bible says this, they've lived out holy lives. In their mouths there was no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Now, I want to touch on one thing that you might have read, and that was this. In verse 4, it says, these are the ones who were not defiled by women, for they were virgins. Is God saying here that you cannot have a relationship with a woman and get into heaven? He's not saying that. It's a picture. And the picture is quite an interesting one because this is the picture. In the Old Testament, if you were fighting in the, in the Israeli army and you were being attacked by another nation like the Philistines, the understanding was in the army a man would not have intercourse with his wife during the whole period of the fight. And the reason for that was simply that they could keep their eyes focused on the task, focused on the battle. And the picture here for us um, is that we are fighting a holy war. I'm not going to call it a crusade. Oh, bless the crusaders. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm not going to call it a crusade. Hands up those who support the Blues. Uh, who supports the Crusaders? Oh, look, Paul's hand goes straight up. Just get Paul at the end, everybody. Okay, so it, it, the holy war that we are fighting is a war against evil. And all of us are called in to fight in that battle. We are called to fight that battle. And the 144,000 actually set an example for the Christians who are listening to this letter being written to them. Peter says this, Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father on the day that he visits. Church, live such good lives amongst the pagans that people see your good works and they say, Why are you so joyful? Why, you so, why did you do that for me? It's your chance to open your mouth and to tell them about the Saviour. 
Notice that the 144,000 were marked with the Father's name. It doesn't say the Father. Just like 666 is not the a name that's written literally on people's heads. That's, that's not the mark of the beast. If you look actually, interestingly enough, at verse 18 in chapter 13 about the mark of the beast, it says, this calls for wisdom. Whoever is intelligent can work out that the meaning of the number of the beast because the number stands for a man's name. Its name is 666. And that was the common understanding in the day that that was Nero's name. If you looked at the Greek letters that were used for Nero, they added up to 666. And it's an implication that not just for Nero, but for um, evil regimes that follow down through history, people who follow those regimes and trust in those people, they have the mark of the beast. We need to be clear that um, Revelation is not a literal book. It's apocalyptic. And so what he's saying here is that Christians have the name of the Father on them. And so often you can see the mark of the Holy Spirit on a person's life. And it's so beautiful. Just the joy in the face. The joy in the eyes. Sometimes you can even see kind of like a glory. That's why they had those pictures of halos. The glory of God on a person. And it says here, they were seen with Jesus. And I just was struck by that word. They're singing songs of praise. They're thanking God who's loved them and saved them. Though they've died in the Lord, they're now enjoying the presence of God with Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to the criminal on the cross? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. To be with Jesus is the greatest thing that could ever happen in anyone's life. It's the greatest thing. There's nothing greater than being with Jesus. I had the pleasure, Sue and I had the pleasure of going to visit Iris George um, shortly before she died. And we sat with her in the little room that she was in, in her son's house. And we spent about an hour, an hour and ten minutes there, and she just smiled. And all she could say was, Jesus loves me, and I love Jesus. She'd had a picture, in fact, um, of the Lord coming to pick her up in an aeroplane and take her away. She shared that with her family. Isn't that a beautiful thing? To be with Jesus is the greatest thing. So that's the first few verses. Then in 6 to 13, John is encouraging the Christians here. Um, that bit is headed, the next little bit is headed, the, heart, uh, the three angels. Um, here, John is encouraging the Christians of that time just to stand firm in persecution. Not to give up. This is what it says. Here is the picture of the saints in verses 12 and 13. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors and their works will follow them. I love that word rest. Do you like that word rest? It's something that happens in our home quite often after lunch with a little bit of chocolate and a sudoku. You know, rest, it's lovely. Rest has that connotation of not fretting or worrying. 
Firstly, John has a picture of an angel flying amongst the heavens with the everlasting gospel, it says. And this gospel is for every nation. Indonesia, it's for every nation, for every tribe and every tongue. And the gospel is simply put here that, first of all, God is good. He's good. And secondly, he is the creator of the world. It didn't come from a big bang. God created. It was his idea. And thirdly, he calls people to recognize him as the creator and the savior of the world. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And this, of course, is a constant reminder to the church to get involved in his mission of proclaiming the gospel to people who don't know Jesus, to tell them of his great love, his compassion, that he's for them, not against them. I heard this wonderful story of a man called Prem Pradam, who was a Nepali Christian, who was converted in the 19 in the late 1940s while as a tank commander in India. Um, and when he went back to Nepal, he decided he was just going to preach the gospel. And he went off around villages preaching the gospel. He didn't have many possessions. He'd hide in trees from tigers and all that sort of thing, you know. But he, many, many people came to faith throughout Nepal through this man's ministry. And he started to baptize lots of people. The government of Nepal does not allow you to proselytize. And so he got thrown into prison 14 times over a period of 10 years for sharing the gospel and baptizing people. Whilst he was in prison, he preached the gospel in prison. And hundreds and hundreds of prisoners got saved. And they left prison and they went out and they started planting churches all around Nepal. And the government, in the end, decided they were not going to finance his church planting activities by supporting him in prison. <laughs> so they let him go. That's what we're called to do. Secondly, we hear this thing that Babylon has fallen. What does Babylon mean? Well, Babylon is a paradigm drawn from the Old Testament of everything that represents wickedness, idolatry, immorality, and sheer cruelty. In 597 BC, Israel was defeated by the Babylonians and carried off into exile and suffered greatly under their rule. Rome here is personified as Babylon. So the hearers, when they hear Babylon, they say, ah, oh, Rome. Okay, I've got it. So the Christians to whom this letter was written would appreciate that God fully understands the context of their living and the difficulties that they're living in. The inference for the Christians living at that time that many had gone before them, the 144,000, and had stood up against immorality, had stood up against um, uh, excessive living, and things like that. They should be encouraged to stand firm and live the Christian life in simplicity and love and power. That's what they're called to do. John was urging and reminding the Christians not to give in to the temptations of Babylon. Babylon has fallen. The devil's been defeated. John was also reminding Christians of the terrible fate that awaited people who worship the beast, who worship Babylon, who get sucked into the world's thinking and live that way. 
The wrath of God and the torment of hell awaits those people. The image of Babylon is also helpful for the Christians because the Christians knew that there were many prophecies in the Old Testament that told the Israelites they'd be one day set free and delivered. And that happened 70 years later. Um, the Israelites were set free and they returned to their land. And so they're reminded that God is a delivering God. He delivers people. And for those of you who are here during the healing service a couple of weeks ago when my brother shared his testimony, what an amazing deliverance my brother had from the way of the world. Gambling and drinking and women and all sorts of things. And then he met Jesus. And one day in a meeting, um, he was challenged to give his life to Christ, to come forward and give his life to Christ. And he did. And then he got baptised. And then the most amazing financial deliverance happened in his life. God is a delivering God if we put our trust in him. So whatever situation we're in, we can trust God for deliverance. He's our father. Finally, in verse 14 to 20, and I missed to come into land here, um, there are two harvests that follow. So we've had that first harvest and the reminder to the church to stand firm and what will happen to those that don't. And finally, there are two harvests. We hear of um, the first one in verses 4 to 16, those who are following the example of the faithful 144,000, the ones receiving this letter, the ones that are listening to it today, the ones that have been converted over the last 2,000 years, there's this harvest of people who've trusted in Christ. Because we see here there's one man like the Son of God. It says, like the Son of God, which is Jesus' favorite description of himself, wearing a golden crown, the king, the victor, he's one. And he's the one that has given his followers, like you and me, the mandate to go and proclaim the good news to those that don't know Jesus. I believe that this harvest is what we call one of the end-time harvests. People talk about, oh, there's a great end-time harvest coming. There's been an end-time harvest for the last 2,000 years, brothers and sisters. Because the end times have actually happened over the last 2,000 years. We're in the end times. We were in 1840. When Marsden came out here and preached the gospel, they were in the end times. When Luther had the Reformation in the 1500s, that was the end times. Do you get the picture? And the second harvest, and this is the worst one of the lot, is to be the harvesting of the wicked. And we hear of an angel thrusting, that word thrusting is a powerful word, his sickle, into the ripe clusters of grapes, ripe. Evil has reached its zenith and thrown, my version says, hurled into the winepress of God's wrath. Just thrown in. Jesus said to his disciples once, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And in those, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. And I don't know about you, that 
I, I look at the world around me and I see man has improved in so many things, technology, banking systems, all those things. But in terms of morality and in terms of hatred and evil, we've got worse and worse and worse. That's what I think. And John is reminding the Christians that that is the fate. The winepress of God's wrath is the fate for those that don't follow the Lamb. I think there would be nothing worse than facing the wrath of God. I cannot think of anything worse. You know, you think of concentration camps. You think of these incredible tornadoes and the power, of, the power of nature that just destroys. I can't think of anything worse than the wrath of God. But, and this is, I want to finish with the good news, it doesn't have to be that way. Because there's a clue in this passage which we must not miss. And this is what it says. Notice the reference to the winepress of God's wrath being trampled outside the city. The word outside there is really important to understand. It's very significant. In Hebrews 13, 12, uh, the writer says, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. This is the point, that Jesus Christ has suffered God's wrath for us. So no one needs to, no one needs to experience God's wrath. You know, when he was at the wedding in Cana, his very first miracle, and his mum said, would you turn the water into wine? He said, woman, why do you bother me? My time has not yet come yet. I'm looking to the cross, the wine of God's wrath. I have to suffer that yet. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. It's the cup of the wrath of God that he took on the cross. And when he was on the cross, he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, Father? You're not there anymore. Because he was taking on him our sins and the sins of the world. He was taking on him the wrath of God. And so no one in Wangarei needs to suffer the wrath of God. And who's he got to help him to deliver this wonderful news? It's you, sir, in Pew 5, seat 3. It's you in seat 4, seat 3. It's all of us. We have a responsibility because Jesus said the fields are ripe for harvest. We're not just to live out our Christian lives in goodness and niceness and be kind and nice. We've got to open our mouths, not be like Arctic rivers that are frozen at the mouth. The gospel needs to be seen, but it needs to be heard. We need to tell people that God loves them. You know, Jesus said, uh, Paul said, today is the day of salvation. I want to challenge anyone here in the church today, if you've not given your life to Christ, I want to challenge you, don't leave this building today without at least talking to someone in the prayer team, um, about what it means to be a Christian. It's very simple. 
Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you're the Lamb of God. Thank you that you died on a cross for my sins. I'm a sinner, Lord. I want to know your love. Please forgive me. Let me come and be part of your family. And then get baptized. Baptism seals our decision. And that's the challenge I want to leave you with. And finally, how many of you got involved in praying for five people during the time of Pentecost? Some of you will have seen this. Okay, um, we were encouraged to write five names down that we were to be praying for. This testimony came out of Thy Kingdom Come this year. A guy called Tim, and he writes this. My cousin isn't a Christian and has been on my pray for five list for the last five years. This Pentecost Sunday, he went to church of his own volition. He hadn't even been invited. He just decided to go and is now interested in beginning his own journey of faith. He's moving to our city later this year for a job, and I'm so excited to see what's going to happen next. Don't give up praying for your friends. Prayer works. I don't want to push our boat, but we've been praying for my brother Ewan for years. And my sister Karen and Katrin are not in the kingdom yet. Keep praying, praying, praying that the Lord will bring them in. So I'm going to finish there, Meg, and hand back to you. Thank you.